Well, let's pray before we look into God's Word uh, together this morning. Father, we thank you that we still have the, the freedom to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ and to sing the praises of your word and to give you glory and to have um, just this holy fellowship that we can enjoy with one another that is just a, um, a warm-up for eternity as we will spend eternity together as those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And, um, and we thank you that you've given us your word, that we are not left to our own devices here as we wait for the return of Jesus, but that we can be uh, encouraged in your word and we can know more of you and, and fall more in love with you as we sit under your word and we study and we meditate and we share with each other. So I just pray that you would even now be preparing our hearts to receive your word, that you would give me um, clarity um, to preach boldly your word so that you would get all the glory from everything that we do today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we now find ourselves in the middle of this, this Christmas season. I know that some of you made the transition right after Halloween, um, but the more restrained of us waited till at least until after Thanksgiving. But we do find ourselves in this unique period where we busy ourselves with family gatherings, perhaps we're attending work parties, um, maybe walking through your neighborhood singing Christmas carols. Does anybody do that anymore? I don't, I'm not sure. But I was struck some time ago as I sat in, at a coffee shop uh, around this time of year, and this might be the only time where we kind of hear songs about Jesus being proclaimed in Starbucks and Walmart and Best Buy. I mean, don't you find it interesting that there's just like this rich theology that's being broadcast in many places around the world at this time of year? It's almost like theology is raining down on us, and yet not everybody is paying attention. And I wonder if you've even considered the words of some of these very familiar songs as you sing them, because there's words and phrases in here that provoke a deep understanding of Scripture. For instance, there's References to reconciliation and incarnation and deity and the bruising of serpents' heads. And even more specifically, we come to references to a second Adam, and that's something that I want for us to explore a bit this morning. Uh, you know that as we gather here, the majority of the time, we explore a passage of Scripture and we work our way through a particular book and we draw out the meaning and the application to our lives. This morning, we're going to do a little bit uh, a different approach. It's more of a theological approach. And simply put, we want to explore a theme that kind of weaves its way through Scripture um, as if making this beautiful tapestry. So please don't think of this merely as a theological lecture, though I know some of you are as nerdy as me and love those kinds of things. Rather, it's my hope that you're going to be encouraged by the cohesion and the unity of Scripture and that you will be further in awe of Christ, again like Lucy gazing upon an ever-enlarging Aslan. Now, it was a few years ago that I became intrigued about the second Adam that is mentioned in the Bible and some of our Christmas songs that we sing, and I was encouraged in this study, and I hope that it's encouraging to you also. And yet, being the astute ones that you are, you have already understood that for us to explore a second Adam, there must be a first Adam. And so in the opening pages of the Bible in Genesis, as you probably know, we are introduced to the origins of the universe and our very existence. 
And we know also that the Bible actually begins and ends with creation and a new creation. However, from the beginning of Genesis to where we up now, and then into the new creation, Revelation 21 and 22, we know that something drastic has happened in order to restore the state of humanity as well as the rest of the created order. And most of us, if we know our Bibles, we know that Jesus has dramatically altered the course of history. Jesus is the most popular figure throughout all time. He's the most recognized holidays on any calendar involve Jesus, Easter, and Christmas. So for this morning, I want us to consider what is significant about the birth of Jesus Christ and how this event begins to remedy the situation from creation. We're not going to be looking at one particular passage but I want to briefly peruse a couple of texts that we're going to cover the significance of Jesus as the second Adam. And so our first of two points this morning is Adam's creation and representation. And so if you would please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning. I'd say it's page 1, but it may not be. But it's the very beginning of the scripture given to us. You remember the opening stories, right? From the outset, we are wowed as we witness an eternal God speak forth everything into existence. We sit back and we watch as light emerges from the darkness, as waters are separated, as land emerges from the water and vegetation sprouts from the earth. The sun, the moon, and the stars appear at the command of God. Creatures in the waters, birds in the air, animals all swarm over this newly created planet. And then finally... We witness God create the apex of all creation, the first man and woman created very uniquely from the rest of creation, and they are joined together. And so we are in wonder at the creativity and the perfection of God's word. Everything is new, everything is wonderful, and everything is perfect. And we must declare what an amazing God. And Genesis 2 speaks of the heavens and the earth being finished. God has completed his work and he rests on the seventh day. It's almost as if God takes a step back from this masterpiece that he's created and he pronounces that it is finished and it is very good. But everything comes to a drastic halt in the very next chapter. In one act of disobedience and rebellion, Adam and Eve suddenly discover their nakedness. They are ashamed, they are hiding from God, they are riddled with guilt, and they are finally banished from this Garden of Eden. That's kind of the narrative account, the, the telling of the story of what took place. But let's consider those events theologically. Now that you are in Genesis 1, you notice some of the unique features that are involved in the creation of Adam and Eve. Read with me in verses 26 to 28 of Genesis chapter 1. The word of the Lord says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
It's here that we discover that man is made in the image and likeness of God. So as human beings, we are like God in certain capabilities. We have the the ability to think, to reason, to plan, to love, to choose, to to desire, to communicate. We are also like God in some of his attributes. In some small fashion, we can demonstrate righteousness, holiness, mercy, compassion, and wisdom. Secondly, mankind is unique in its position in the world. God gave man a responsibility and position of dominion over all of the other creatures. God established that we would be the rulers on the earth, and this was part of our mandate. The other part given to Adam was was the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They're not to live in isolation, but to increase those who would call upon the name of the Lord. God's plan was that the earth would be filled with his people, walking in sweet fellowship with one another and with him. So what happened? What was it that caused everything to turn on a dime? We were created to fill the earth and to sing one song of praise to our maker, no shame, no fear, and no guilt. Adam and Eve chose to rebel. In chapter 3, we witness a new character enter into the drama. The serpent came, twisting the word of God and tempting the first man and woman to question him. Planting seeds of doubt stirred up within the man and woman this rebellious and selfish spirit. And so the man and the woman took of the fruit of the only tree that was prohibited to them. In that moment, everything changed. You can almost feel it as you read it or you hear about it, the heaviness, the sorrow, and the regret. If you're a Christian, you know the feeling when you succumb to temptation and the remorse that follows. Because sin entices you to instant pleasure and gratification. The temptations look attractive until the lights are turned on and you see the ugliness and the death surrounding you. But sin never delivers on its promises. It's important to remember that God always promises something better. Perhaps perhaps Adam and Eve felt as though God wasn't watching, or maybe they believed the lie that they would be like him. In any event, at the first opportunity, they rebelled against their maker and launched all of creation into sin and death. Romans 5 makes this perfectly clear. In Romans 5.12, Paul tells us that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so that death spread to all men. See, men and women were created to live forever, but because Adam and Eve sinned against God, they were mercifully removed from the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life so that they would be spared an eternity in their sin. It took me some time to, re- to come to that realization, but since that time, all men and women are subject to physical death. There is a one-to-one ratio on that. In addition, all humanity would now enter the world into a state of sinful separation from God. You'll recall David's words in Psalm 51, when he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So because of this event in Genesis 3, the very opening pages in our Bibles, all of humanity, indeed all of creation, suffers under the curse of sin and death. 
It's a pretty bleak picture. Yet in the same chapter, we read about a glimmer of hope. In verse 15 of chapter 3, we come across what theologians call the Proto-Euangelion, or the first gospel. In the curse to the serpent, there is a mention of a future deliverer, the seed of the woman, who would come and crush the head of the serpent. So we begin to look with anticipation to the son, the, the seed of the woman that's going to be born, Eve. And then chapter 4 mentions Adam and Eve conceived and bore a son. Would he be the one? Who is it? Cain. Cain is born. Now it turns out that he sinfully murdered his brother. And then from there, things don't get much better. Humanity deteriorates up until the time of Noah when God can no longer take the wickedness that is on the world. And so he wants to destroy the world with a flood and then save his people through Noah. But the text indicates that Noah was a righteous man. Perhaps he was the one who's going to reverse the effects of Adam. And in many ways, he is considered a new Adam. He was introduced to a recreation and a similar mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. However, it doesn't take too long before we realize that he too failed in his sinfulness, even with the fresh start, without the effects of wickedness and corruption around him. But you can, you can begin to feel the weight when time after time that every new man of God that was raised up would demonstrate that he was not the one that was going to conquer the adversary and reverse the curse that we introduced. Not Abraham, not Moses, not Gideon, Samson, or David. All of them were sinners. And they were incapable of restoring humanity to God. Now thousands of years waiting hoping, clinging to faith in the promises of God. So let's consider, secondly, Jesus' intervention and restoration. I think of the words, late in time, behold him come. The great wonder of Christmas and all of history is this. God himself enters into this human story and transforms it. And this is where we must start for examining the second Adam. Like the first Adam, this one too would have to enter our world as a representative for all of humanity. And one of the more familiar places that we see this is in a passage of Scripture often quoted during Christmas time. In John 1.14, the Apostle writes, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what we celebrate this time of year. Now, what is particularly fascinating about the passage and the context, do you remember how John begins his gospel? What are the first three words? In the beginning. Huh. It's almost as if he wants to make the deliberate tie to the opening pages of Genesis and the first creation. What do we learn from this? Well, that God is eternal. Jesus, the Word, was with God in the act of creation. And John wants to make a very deliberate connection with this account. And he is God and he is eternal. A couple weeks ago, I meant reference to the opening words of John chapter 1, where we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So John is already connecting the dots. 
with regard to God and man. So in order for a second Adam to remedy our situation, he needed to take on flesh and blood. And this is precisely what he did when he was born in a major in Bethlehem. And we read even more specifically in Hebrews chapter 2, where the author tells us, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things. Making that very clear connection that Jesus became fully man. And this is incarnation. You know, we, if some of us who have grown up in church, we throw that word around so much. It is unique to Christianity and is unique to this event. Where God has taken on flesh and becoming a man. Don't become familiar with that. You should be amazed. God took on human flesh. Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. And John goes to great lengths to tell us that he became flesh. He dwelt among us. And like man, Jesus possesses the very image of God. We talked about that a couple weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 1. said he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so as man, it was his mission to succeed where Adam had failed. Adam failed by being tempted by the serpent, the devil. When Jesus grew up and began his ministry, do you remember what happened? Jesus goes to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. And then the spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And the next thing we read is that the spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then Jesus is then insulted by a temptation in a very a temptation in a very specific way. And in each of these temptations, Jesus emerges victorious over the devil. And yet the temptations didn't end there. He continued to live as one of us, being exposed to all the temptations, all the same temptations that we experience on a daily basis. The scriptures demonstrate time and time again that Jesus remained completely free of sin. And in Hebrews, fabulous book, the author says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Praise God. This is what theologians refer to as the, the active obedience of Jesus, that he lived the life that we were designed to live. Adam failed, and Jesus succeeded. The first Adam had been subdued by the serpent. The second Adam rules over the serpent. And so as Adam introduced sin and death to the creation, Jesus came to destroy the very same. As a spotless lamb, he never sinned. Jesus was led to a cross on Calvary in order to pay the debt that we could not afford. And this is the point in time where we read the first gospel in Genesis 3. That's where that's being fulfilled, that he crushes the head of the serpent. Jesus hangs from a cross and he absorbs the wrath of God for our sin. And he pours out his blood in order to atone for our sin and he enters into death. Now that amazes me. Jesus, the Son of God... All right, so Genesis 1, John chapter 1, 
All things were created through him. Not anything that was made was made without him. This Jesus, he left the heavenly throne to enter into death on our behalf. He died. And that's what theologians refer to as the passive obedience of Christ. And if we're to put those together, we could say that Jesus lived the life that we were created to live and yet died the death that we deserved to die. What wondrous love is this? On the third day, however, Jesus didn't remain in the tomb. He arose from the dead. On the cross, Jesus conquered sin. And when he arose from the grave, he conquered death. Adam brought us all under the curse of sin and death, and Jesus conquered them both. Amen. What else do we remember from Adam? He was given the mandate to rule over creation. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he then ascended into heaven where he now sits on a throne. The author to the Hebrews in chapter 2 he says, for it is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, and has been testified somewhere, that what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that, listen to this phrase, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death. By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We saw a couple of weeks ago in Hebrews 1 that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and yet we now live in the tension where Jesus is still awaiting the day where he's going to make the final eradication of his enemies and rule without rival. But the day has not come yet because there's yet more to be fulfilled by the second Adam. You see, the first Adam received a bride from the Father, the second Adam also has purchased a bride by his blood. Have you ever considered how unique, when you read, we become familiar with these pages and these stories. Have you ever considered how uniquely the creation of the bride had occurred? There's lots of speculation by theologians, but I had a privilege of sitting under a teacher to, to, and just he helped me to look for the creative ways that God communicates theological truth. Um, Dr. Gage pointed out that when Adam in the garden was still innocent, having not yet committed any sin, nonetheless, God wounded Adam in his side, taking the substance of the womb from which he created a bride for the man. God then healed Adam of the wound and awakened him in the garden to receive his bride in the beauty and purity of her creation. And following the pattern of Genesis... The Apostle John portrays Jesus as the new Adam who was in a bridegroom in search of a bride. We read that in John chapter 3. But how did God provide a bride for Jesus? God brought the sleep of death upon his son, who had committed no sin. While he was on the cross, 
Jesus was likewise innocent, having, having no sin in him, yet God wounded him, permitting his side to be pierced by a Roman spear. And God took the substance out of the side of Jesus and created a bride for this new Adam, purchased with blood and washed with water. God then healed Jesus of his wound, and he wakened him from the sleet of death in a garden, having given life to his bride, who will one day be presented to him in all the beauty and purity of her new creation in Revelation 21. And so the Father continues to call forth the bride of Christ who will be reconciled to him and to reign with him for all of eternity. Amen. And this is what we're waiting for. I'm going to ask you now just to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Paul's apostle right after the book of Acts that we're currently studying. Romans 5 and then move your way down to verse 12. Paul is a way of tying this all together for us. Follow along as I read verses 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians, Paul goes on to say, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Jesus has come in the divine image. He was victorious over the temptations of the devil. He lived a life of sinless perfection. He conquered sin and death. Jesus has restored the future reign of mankind in an eternal kingdom. And he is now in the process of redeeming sinful humanity from the curse. Well, how is that done? As the Father draws his bride to Christ... They repent of their sins and they trust in the second Adam, Jesus. 
Consider 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So this is much more than a theology lesson. This is tremendous news. This is the gospel, and it's the only hope for all of humanity. We had done nothing but placed ourselves in opposition to a holy God by our disobedience. But the obedience of the second Adam sets things right. And this is why we celebrate a tiny baby in a feeding trough in an obscure town of Bethlehem. All of our hope rides on this one succeeding in his mission. And he has. Hope has come to us in this way. Let me close by reciting the words of a familiar song that we sing at Christmas time. We're not going to sing it today, but recall these words next time you do sing it, because you will. It's literally dripping with deep theological significance. If only songwriters would still write this way. But hopefully this brief study will open your eyes to the depths of the good news of Christmas. And you know the song. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hail the heavenly Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth and born to give them second birth. Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Now display thy saving power. Ruined nature, now restore. Now in mystic union join thine to ours and ours to thine. Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Let us thee, though lost, regain thee, the life, the inner man. O to all thyself impart, formed in each believing heart. Let's pray. Father, you are a miraculous and wondrous God, when we consider that the creator of all the universe might come and enter, enter into our otherwise hopeless state to take on flesh in the person of Jesus and to be suffered, to be tempted, to be born as a baby, helpless and needing of others to take care of physical needs. Lord, 
Our minds are boggled, and yet we rejoice that the hope that has come to us this time of year. May we never become so familiar with the incarnation, but that we would be continually amazed and that we would give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.